Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you were to peel back the curtain of any successful organization or business or or enterprise or any endeavor, you would find uh, behind that curtain of every successful one is that there is defined a clear mission uh, and then also a clear set of values that drive the mission of that organization. Um, You would see that inside that organization that's led that way that everyone on board or involved would know what they're doing with clarity. They would understand why they're doing it and there would be a thought out way that all of that is taking place and everyone would be on the same page. There would be unity uh, in the thing. And so what we would call that way that things are done in a successful uh, organization would be the, the values of that organization or the core principles that, uh, that determine literally everything that happens that make the organization fruitful or growing or moving forward. So um, how... Uh, opportunities present themselves, how people are hired, what drives the vision and goals, all of that would be determined in the values of that uh, organization. Now, any organization that's floundering or dying, you'll find that it lacks those things. There's a clear sense of, or, or there's not a clear sense of mission, there's no purpose, there are no values, it's just kind of a haphazard mishmash of, of things Uh, And there's no order to it, and thus the thing can't get any traction. It can't gain any ground. Now, having said that, every individual human life is really kind of a microcosm of that same thing. Any human life that is bearing good fruit, or that we could even use the word is being successful, inside or behind the curtain of that life, there's going to be kind of a clear sense of, of purpose or mission. Uh, That life knows why it exists. That person knows why they exist. And then behind that mission, there's going to be a whole slew of values that keep that mission on track, that make it successful, uh, and that literally drive it forward. And that will be true in every human life. But then if you kind of take that life and you make it a Christian's life or someone that belongs to God, it's kind of the same thing. The only difference would be is that A Christian's mission comes from God. God is the one that reveals to you and I as individuals what it is that our mission or our purpose in life, in his kingdom, to bring him glory is. And so we have a mission, and hopefully, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you know what that is, that it would be a very easy thing for you to sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and just kind of write out your own mission statement for your life. Now, it would probably be some uh, submission of the Great Commission in some way, you'd find that it would fit into that, you know, because everything ultimately will, but as unique as you and I are in our personalities and the way that we express ourselves, uh, we each have a purpose. God has made us for that. Now, behind that purpose, what God does is that by His Holy Spirit, He also gives to us the strength and the motivation to continue in that purpose. He empowers us to do it. And so we're driven in a certain way to fulfill what it is that he's made us to do. That's why oftentimes we discover our purpose by understanding what we like. Because God doesn't usually give us something to do that we hate. He made us the way we are. 
And so what he gives us to do usually is in alignment with that in some way, and we enjoy doing what we're doing. But we rely on his spirit to strengthen us and motivate us in order to fulfill that. Now, if we're going to be fruitful, and if that fruit is going to remain, then behind that strength, there is a set of values that drive us. We live our lives according to a certain set of values that then will keep us on track in our strength for our purpose that we might be lastingly fruitful in our mission. And so you say, what does that have to do with Ecclesiastes chapter 7? Well, everything, and here's why. Because the chapter that we have before us really kind of reads like a chapter of Proverbs, if you've read ahead. Solomon is kind of all over the place, and he really jumps from thing to thing, and there isn't really a melody that goes through each of these things that Solomon is going to say. They're somewhat disrelated or disjointed. But if you look at it kind of zoomed out a little ways, what you see in chapter 7 is kind of a universal list of core values that you can apply to every Christian life. And if you kind of adopt the values that Solomon defines here in this chapter, then you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to be fruitful in the purpose that God has given you, and you're going to stay motivated to fulfill it all the way through until the end. And so what Solomon gives us in chapter 7 here are basically 15 core principles or core values that will universally foster success and fruitfulness in any life. Now, I'll say this as one more word of prefacing before we get in, is that many of things are paradoxical in nature, meaning that they don't make sense. They're kind of counterintuitive to what we think uh, would actually work. I looked up the word paradox Uh, It actually means, this is the definition, a seemingly self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. And and so it seems like it wouldn't make sense, it's counterintuitive, but if, if you play it out, it actually does. And so much of the Christian life is very paradoxical. I mean, Jesus was the king of paradox, wasn't he? I mean, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's counterintuitive. You would think, no, it's better to receive than to give. But if you've lived that way, you realize that Jesus was right. He said that the way up is to go down. You think, no, 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 the way up is to go up. But if you've ever lived the way of Jesus, then you realize, no, he's right. The way up is down. You know? And so, so much of the Christian life is paradoxical. And the reason for that is because we live in an upside-down world. And so what Solomon says to us doesn't necessarily make sense, but if we hear what he says and we say, Lord, do this in my life and make me this way, then we're going to find success in the things that we do, tried and true things. And so we're going to move through these things very quickly as we go through this chapter. So hang on, take notes, and if you want to review, you can follow up with the study either online or uh, otherwise later. But number one is given to us in verse one, and it is, writing, if you're taking notes, is that character is more important than competence. Character is more important than competence. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now, a good name, of course, is speaking of your reputation, your repute, your integrity, the character that you have. That's what a good name speaks of. And Solomon says that that is better than precious ointment. Now, he's not talking about Tommy Hilfiger number seven there. 
you know, when he says ointment or, uh, you know, the cologne or perfume of your choice. The ointment in the Bible always speaks of anointing. And so the precious ointment is the oil or the anointing that God puts on an individual life to bring his name glory. And so if you wanted to use the word anointing, you could also use the word gifting, the talents that are given to us by God, the way that he uses us. And, and, and those things are given to us by him. When we come to Christ, he gives us his spirit. And when he gives us his spirit, he anoints us. And so there's something that comes out of our life that is not from us. It's from God. And then he uses it to make us fruitful. Now, the reason it's paradoxical is you would think that a person's anointing or a person's talent or gifting, you would think that that is more important than their reputation or their character. But not so with God. With God, character is more important than your competence or your anointing. Because your character, or your anointing or your gifting can only carry you as far as your character can sustain you. And if your character is cracked or disjointed, then your giftings are going to fail because it's going to tarnish the work that you're doing. And so character is very important. I remember a number of years ago, there was a prominent pastor that I looked up to and it was revealed that he had been um, failing in sexual sin for a long period of time. And God had greatly used him. He was very anointed. There was precious ointment that was on his life and that was coming out of his life. But his character wasn't in alignment with his competence. And when what was going on behind the scenes was then exposed, it ruined the smell of the ointment and it tore down the fruit. And so what's the principle? The principle is that fruit that remains is more important than fruit that just exists today. And if you don't have the kind of character that can sustain long-lasting fruit, then today's fruit is really pretty much worthless in the long run. And so character is more important than countenance. And then he points to the day of death as being more important or better than the day of one's birth. He's not being cynical there, but he's seeing things from an eternal perspective. And for you and I, as the people of God, the day of death speaks of graduation. And if you want to be fruitful all the way until graduation, then keep your eyes on the goal that comes at the end and not just the beginnings, the excitement of the beginnings or what you're doing now. And so the key to seeing lasting character as important is to see the finish line in advance. Number two, the second value that Solomon lays out before us it's in verses 2 through 4, and it con, uh, concerns emotional sobriety. And it's this, if you're taking notes, is that stimulus distracts, but sobriety sustains. Listen to what Solomon says. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning, the house of weeping, the house of loss, than to go to the house of feasting, plenty, partying, celebration. For that is the end of all men and the living will lay it to his heart. And then he says it another way in verse 3. He says, sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. And then the third way in verse 4, he says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the heart of mirth or in the house of mirth and so he kind of gives us these three things that all kind of say the same thing he talks about mourning versus feasting sorrow versus laughter and mourning versus mirth and so the house of mourning or sorrow would really be a time of loss a time of setback a time of trouble that you're going through in your life that's when we mourn we mourn when we lose something 
The house of feasting and the house of mirth that he talks about and laughter is a times of rejoicing, times of celebration, times of indulgence, times of prosperity and the high life. And what he says is that the sorrow side is better than the celebration side. Now, again, it's paradoxical. We wouldn't think that would be absolutely true. But he gives us three reasons in those verses why the house of mourning is better than the house of rejoicing. He says in verse 2, the reason is because that this is the end of all men. What does he mean by that? When he says that sorrow or mourning or loss is the end of all men. Here's what he means. Is that no matter what it is that we ever pick up, attain or obtain in this life, one day we're going to put it down. Every human life is kind of like a parabola. So I, think, I think I'm using the right term. You know that curve that starts flat and then it kind of swells into a balloon, either upwards or downwards, and then it ends flat again. And so we're born with nothing, the Bible says. We're born naked. And then we have a whole life of experience and things. And then when we die, we put it all down again and we leave the world as we came into it with nothing. And so what Solomon is saying is, hey, listen, someday you're going to experience the loss of things. It's the end of all men is where you're going. And so blessed is the person that maintains the sobriety of understanding that everything that we have in this world, one day we're going to leave it behind. And what that does is it kills the pain of the loss. He says in verse 3 that mourning makes the heart better. See, when we lose something, when we go through times of pain, the heart is reformed, the heart is refined, the heart is remodeled. We have empathy, we learn sympathy, we learn how to relate to other people. And thus there's value added to our character and our heart in the times that we lose more than in the times that we gain. And then the third reason it's better, he gives us in verse 4, is because in the house of mourning is where wisdom is obtained. Decisions, wise decisions, are learned in times of difficulty, times of mourning, not so much in times of mirth. And so here's the application of the point, is that whether it's material things whether it's our own reputation, our legacy, or our status, whatever it is that we climb into in the apex of our fruitful life, one day we're going to lose it all. We leave it all behind when we check out of this world. And Solomon is saying to us that the less you have, the less it hurts when you lose it. And the simpler you can keep your life, your heart will be in the right place with God and with people. He goes on in verses 5 and 6, and he gives us number 3. And that is this, important core value of every good life is that appraisal is better than affirmation notice what he says in verse 5 he says it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools for as the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fool this also is vanity now i don't have to tell you guys that we live in the age and in the time where everyone gets a trophy right just for participating. Just show up and you're going to get a trophy and you're going to be affirmed and applauded. There's no winners and there's no losers. It's just, did you play the game? And everyone goes home with a ribbon. But that's not real life. And, and it's okay. We want to be affirming. We want to be encouraging and building up. But if we never give honest appraisal to what someone is doing, how they're performing, then they're never going to become greater. And it's important that there be rebuke sometimes from the wise. It's important that the people that we look up to give us an honest appraisal of how we're doing and give us honest feedback. Jesus was so good at this. He never did it in a way 
that made him unapproachable or made people uncomfortable around him. But Jesus had this amazing way that even when someone was in error, he knew how to both affirm and also rebuke at the same time. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us when we preach in your name. And and Jesus knew that they were off in, in their assessment of what ministry was all about and why they were serving him and the whole thing. And he said, hey, nothing is ever going to hurt you. Everything is going to, you know, work out in the long run for you. And he gave them like four or five things that were in their favor, that were, they were doing right. But then he said, nevertheless, in this don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Get the motive right underneath all of it. And so he could give affirmation at the same time give rebuke. And it's important we understand appraisal being better than affirmation. I love the analogy that he uses there when he says that uh, the laughter of fools is like the fire crackling thorns. You ever burn a pile of brush? It burns real hot and real fast, and then it leaves nothing but a pile of ash. It's worthless. It doesn't do much for you. And constant affirmation, it's very comforting, but it doesn't do much good for the person who's receiving it. In verse 7, he gives us four and five. And they have to do with authority. Notice what he says in verse uh, 7. He says, Surely oppression makes a wise man mad or crazy or, or, you know, kind of off their rocker, cray-cray, if you want to use modern lingo. And then he says that a gift destroys the heart. And so concerning authority, number four, is that authority is given to us by God in order for us to serve not in order for us to rule. I was listening recently to a man who was in the room when President Obama was inaugurated and Andy Stanley was called upon to address the president and his uh, vice president and his cabinet when he was inaugurated. And uh, this man who heard it said that it was the most amazing thing because what, what Andy Stanley did is that he, he opened up by asking the question. He just simply said, what do you do when you walk into a room and you're the most powerful person in the room? And obviously he was standing there with not the most powerful person in the room, but probably the most powerful person in the world. And then what he did after asking that question is he read John chapter 13, where Jesus, the son of God, washed the feet of his disciples without any clothes on. And then he gave the simple answer to the question by saying, if you walk into a room and you're the most powerful person in the room, what you do is you leverage your authority to serve others. And that was all he said. And the man who was there said everyone in the room was spellbound and so appreciative because it was a room of very powerful people that didn't really even know the answer to that question of how to, how to act when you're the most powerful person in the room. But the godly way of using authority rightly is that we leverage the authority that God gives to us in order to serve others, not rule over them. And when we misconstrue that and we make authority a means of ruling over others and oppressing them, Solomon says that the result is going to be madness. You're going to begin to slowly go crazy. I remember once I read a book by Warren Wiersbe called On Being a Servant of God, and it was just lessons that he learned as a pastor over the years. And I'll never forget one sentence that he said stuck with him that he never forgot. And he said, it says this, basically, that whom the gods would destroy, they first make drunk with power. 
It's such a powerful statement to think. And if you've ever known someone who rules with an iron fist, you probably can make the connection in your mind that madness is slowly behind it. Authority is given to serve. Number five in the second half of the verse is that authority is a privilege. It's not to be used as leverage. Notice he says that a gift destroys the heart. And so a gift in this context is a bribe. That's what that means in the Bible. And so when someone who is in a position of authority is bribed into using that authority as a leverage to accomplish a self-motive, then it says that it destroys the heart. And the heart in this context is the mission of the life. It says in Exodus chapter 23, verse 8, in the giving of the law, God spoke through Moses, and he says that a gift blinds the eyes of the wise. And so when you use authority as a lever to accomplish self-will, the result and consequence is that you're going to lose vision for your mission and purpose in life. It's going to derail what it is that you're trying to accomplish in life. And so don't use authority as a leverage for self-interest. Use it as God intended it. Use it as a purpose to serve. Number six he gives to us in verse eight, and that is that success is measured by outcomes, not by ideas. Notice what he says. He says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. He says that the end of a thing is what we should set our focus upon and not just simply the beginning. You don't really know the success or the failure of anything until the end, until the outcome, until the whole thing is over. And, and what we know is that success or fruitfulness is the byproduct of patient, continuous, not just having lofty goals. See, it's one thing to sit down and chart a path and to get really excited at the beginning of an endeavor or of an idea. It's another thing to then lay down the goals Make a roadmap of how you're going to get where you're trying to go and then see fruit come out of that endeavor and bring it to its completion. And what Solomon is saying here is that success isn't measured at the beginning when you say, well, that's a great idea. Success is measured at the end when everything's been implemented and it works. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning and it's through patient continuance that the matter is established. And so oftentimes I tell my kids, set goals... But don't just set goals. At the same time, make a plan. How are you going to go about and what can you do today to execute so that those ideas don't just fall on the floor as great ideas, but that's it. They never turned into anything else. I tell them, be a doer and not just a thinker. Set a goal and make a path. The seventh thing Solomon gives to us is in verse 9. And that is that we're to be responsive, not reactive. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, be not hasty in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Anger is a lot like sugar. It's really fun to feed on, but it does a lot more harm than good. James 1.20 says that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And what I've noticed in the time that I've been alive, and I'm sure that you have too, is that oftentimes anger isn't a response to something, it's more of a reaction. We make a snap judgment about something that happens or something that we see, 
and it stirs up that emotional rage inside of us. And the easy, quick thing to do is that we just want to react to it and we want to explode and let anger come forth. What Solomon is saying here is, hey, that's not the way it's supposed to go. He says, don't be hasty in your spirit to be angry because anger rests in the bosom of fools. And here's what I've found, is that anger is an easy reaction, but usually it's the wrong response. Meaning that if I look at something that's making me angry long enough, I'm probably going to realize that there's more to it than what I initially considered And I'm going to see it from an angle that pacifies my anger and I can then respond to whatever that is in a more accurate or more productive way. Anger isn't the best way. Let's be responsive to things and not reactive. We'll be patient in our spirit, not hasty. Number eight is given to us in verse 10. And it's this. Embrace today and make it good. Notice. He says, don't say or say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these. For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. The past is a very unreliable tool to analyze the present. And the reason for that is because the amount of variables that make up any situation or any season of the life or culture or even in your own thing are so vast and so complex that it's impossible to drag what's going on today or what happened yesterday into today and make an accurate comparison about which day is better. How, how many in here are guilty of talking about the good old days? <laughs> talking about way back when, when things were right, you know. When we had, you know, our food and we walked to school and we didn't have the creature comforts, and we were thankful, and man, kids these days, and you know, you get into the whole thing about the good old times and the good old days. What Solomon is saying is, hey, listen, that's not real. He says, don't say that the former days are better than these. You're not inquiring wisely. You're not looking at it from every angle. What I've found is this, is that life is like a kaleidoscope. It is always turning, it's always changing, and it's never the same twice. And you cannot measure what's going on today based upon what happened in the past because it's not the past anymore. It's different. I heard someone say one time, and it has stuck with me, it's been great advice, is that anyone who says that the old times were better than these has a real good imagination and a real bad memory. (laughs) And I think there's some truth in that. And Solomon's saying, listen, embrace today for what it is and you make it good. Don't say, well, if it was like it was, then things would be better. No, take what God has dealt today and make it good. That's the opportunity that's in front of every single one of us. And God's given us the ability to do it. In verse 11 and 12, he gives us number nine. And that is that the tree of wealth must be rooted in the soil of wisdom. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, wisdom is good with an inheritance And by it, there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense and money is a defense, but excellency of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to them that have it. Here's the truth about anything in life, in this life under the sun, is that the larger something gets, the more you have to know how to manage what that something is. If you have a vegetable garden and you expand that garden then you have to know how to manage a larger garden because a larger garden is going to bring 
a greater temptation to vermin and predators and things that are going to steal from your garden. If you run a business, then you have to, as that business grows, you have to know how to manage the business at different levels in order to keep it productive and to keep it from falling apart and becoming overcomplicated and, and breaking down. And the same thing is true with our personal wealth, is that as we grow in our income or as we maybe even inherit money is the word that Solomon uses here, if we don't know how to manage the increase, then that increase is going to turn into nothing because it's going to be either stolen from us by some wasteful thing or it'll just come to nothing. It'll come to naught. And so wealth is rooted in the ground of wisdom. And as we grow, or even as we want to grow in our financial capacity, then we need wisdom, the ability to make good decisions and to protect what God's given us. We need it in an equivalent proportion to the amount of wealth that we have. Otherwise, it just falls to the ground and it's wasted. Oftentimes, you'll, you'll hear on the news about someone who won a Powerball lottery or this mega jackpot, and, and they went from literally from rags to riches in, in a matter of a moment, you know, as the numbers were called. And then you follow the life of a person that came into that kind of, a, of wealth, and you see how within just a very short period of time, they either destroy their lives, kill themselves, or they're right back where they started again. And the reason why that happens so often is because if a person doesn't know how to make that kind of money, then reality is they probably don't know how to manage that kind of money either. And so Solomon is saying, listen, as you grow in this way, and we should grow in this way, we should want to grow in this way, we also need the kind of wisdom to know how to manage it. Money is grown, wealth is grown, the tree of wealth is rooted in the soil of wisdom. That's what he gives us there for number nine. He goes on and he gives us number 10 in verse 13, and that is this, don't try to make the rules or change the rules, just figure them out. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he has made crooked? In other words, what he's saying is that, listen, we live in a fallen world. And that is just the reality of where we're at. That's what we're in. It's the dynamics of what we have to deal with. And we have two choices in that context. We can either constantly be trying to straighten out something that's irreparably crooked, or we can realize that the rules of the game are that we live in a crooked world, learn those rules, and then learn how to thrive in the environment that we're in. My daughter shared with me uh, something that she learned from Ben Shapiro. And, uh, you know, I don't know too much about him. I know that he has become kind of the, he is a rising voice of political conservatism. And I know that if you poke him, probably common sense is going to come out uh, of some poor, you know. And um, she was sharing with me something that she heard him say about his education and the way that he was educated. And this man who was kind of bred conservative and bleeds conservative was educated in a very liberal environment. So I think he went to Yale, and then he went to Harvard Law School, and he graduated 4.0, like the highest, highest, highest that you can graduate in that system. And he says that the way that he did that is that every time he wrote a paper or answered a question or was called upon in any way, he answered like someone on the far left of liberalism would answer the question. Every paper. He said because he realized 
that they were such liberal-minded organizations that if he answered according to his persuasion and convictions, that the best he could ever do was a B, even if his things were perfect, because they were biased against what he believed. And so he turned their own arm against them. He answered the way they would want him to answer, and he graduated with honors, won himself a name, and now he uses his intelligence to beat down the very organizations that he used in order to gain the platform that he has. What's that called? It's called using the bent, crooked rules of this world in order to get done what needs to get done. Now, that's not dishonesty. That's not lying. It's just realizing fallen world, fallen man, selfish humanity, risen Savior. And then taking what God has given to us and using it to our advantage. What does it say in Genesis 1.28? God basically said, have dominion over the world and subdue it. Harness the elements and make something happen. That's the call that he's given to every one of us. Harness the elements and make something happen. And part of that is realizing the dynamics of the environment that we're in and then leveraging them for God's will in our lives. And so don't try to make or change the rules. Just figure out what they are and then leverage them for your purpose. Number 11 is given to us in verse 14. That is, enjoy the good that comes. Just remember, it's not yours. Verse 14, he says, In the days of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider that God also has set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. Listen, good is going to come into our lives and there's going to be times where we suffer loss and and we're going to have hard times. There's going to be days of prosperity and there's going to be days of leanness. And we're given the gift to enjoy the good that God gives into our life. But we're to realize that it's not ours to keep. And at the end of the day, we lay it all down that there's nothing after our life here and there's nothing greater than God. And so we keep things in their proper context. Number 12 is given to us over a span of a number of verses. Between verses 15 and 20, number 12 is fear God and kill the facade. Fear God and kill the facade. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, All things that I have seen in the days of my vanity... There is a just man that perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man that prolongs his life in his wickedness. So foundation to the point or to the principle is that a person's morality is not a good indication of their prosperity or of their health or how they're doing. A person could be very moral, and they could be just dying, languishing, not doing well. Or a person could be in excessive wickedness, and they could be thriving. And so you can't judge how someone is doing, or whether God is pleased with them based on what you see outwardly in their life, because it could be deceiving. It's against logic. And so, in light of this, he says in verse 16, be not righteous over much, meaning self-righteous. Don't put yourself out to be more righteous than you actually are. I mean, hopefully God is changing us and working in every one of us, and we're not the same as we were when we first came to Christ, or even the same as we were a year ago or a month ago, that he's shaping and changing us. But we're not to put on that we're more righteous than we actually are. He says, don't be over-righteous, neither make yourself over-wise, for why should you destroy yourself? What he's talking about here is hypocrisy is that we put it forward that we are more than what we actually are. And the reason why that will destroy us ultimately is because you can't forever mask what the truth is about what's going on inside of you. And someday it's going to be exposed and your name is going to be tarnished. 
So you don't have to do that. Don't put on like you're further along than you actually are. You're free to be where you are. We're fallen sinners that are growing in grace as Jesus changes us year by year and day by day. And we don't have to be hypocrites and pretend that we're something that we're not. On the other side of that, he says in verse 17, don't be overmuch wicked. Neither be foolish, for why should you die before your time? So if we put on self-righteousness unto hypocrisy, we're going to tarnish our character because that hypocrisy is going to be exposed. But what hypocrisy also does is that it breeds more wickedness under the surface because it allows a facade wherein I don't have to deal with the corruption of my character and that corruption continues to grow. And as wickedness advances, I can bring the judgment of God upon my life and there is a person that will die maybe a little bit earlier than they would have otherwise because of an excessive wickedness that they've allowed to grow under the surface of their life. He says it is good in verse 18 that you should take hold of this. Yes, also from this withdraw not your hand. Here's the answer. He that fears God will come forth of them all. In other words, don't put on like you are something you're not. And don't feel like you have to be further along in the Lord than you actually are. Just keep your eyes on him, fear him in a healthy and reverent way, walk with him, and you're going to come forward ahead of all the rest. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city, for there is not a just man upon the earth that does good and sins not. He's saying two things in those two verses. What he's saying about the, the wisdom strengthening the wise more than ten mighty men in the city. Listen, listen. If you have a whole city, take even the city of Poughkeepsie, and you put ten wise men in that city, is it really going to make a huge difference if an army attacks the city? Not really. I don't think, I mean, maybe they might help in some way, but ten Wise men in an entire city against an army, it doesn't do much good. I think what he's saying to us there is that by you putting forward that you're further along than you are in playing the hypocrite, what good's it going to do you in the long run? It doesn't actually help you. And here's the reality, verse 20, is that there's not a just man upon the earth that does good and sins not. We're all sinners. We're all fallen. And we don't have to pretend that we're not. Thank God he's changing us. Thank God he's protecting us and keeping us from going full, full bore into our sins. He gives us the grace to walk with him, but we shouldn't pretend we are. Hey, kill the facade and just fear God. That's what Solomon is saying to us there. Number 13 is given to us in verses 21 and 22. And it is, don't give, the, don't give people the power of validation in your life. Watch this. He says, also, take no heed unto all the words that are spoken, lest you hear your servant curse you. For oftentimes, also your own heart knows that you yourself likewise have cursed others. In other words, listen, there's a lot of voices that you're going to hear in the course of your lifetime. And some of those voices are going to be talking about you. You're going to hear things that people said, some good and some not good. What Solomon is saying is this. He's saying, listen, don't put too much stock in what you're hearing other people say because you know that you have run your mouth sometimes and you have said things that maybe you regret, you found them to be untrue, or you have spoken good things about people that you found that weren't necessarily merited. What's the big idea? The big idea is, listen, get your affirmation and your approval from God. 
Don't give people power to validate or discredit the merit of your life. Get it from God. If you hear someone say something good about you, maybe you can mark it, but don't take it to heart. Listen, is God pleased with me? If you hear someone criticize you and they don't like you or they don't like what you're doing, don't let that drag you down that you need to receive validation from them. Don't give people that kind of power. Live before God, fear Him, and you'll do fine. That's number 13. Number 14 is given to us, again, over a span of verses between 23 and 28. And this is a huge one, very important. It's this, obey first, understand second. Obey first, understand second. Watch this, because here's Solomon's flaw. He lets us see it, a moment of great vulnerability. He says, all this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise but it was far from me. In other words, I'm about to tell you guys something that I couldn't figure out. There was actually something that Solomon couldn't figure out. He says, that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? In other words, this is so hard, no one can figure it out. I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. He said, I tried every which way. I uncovered every rock. I read every book. I prayed and meditated. I tried and tried and I never figured this one out. Here it is, verse 26. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands who pleases God or he who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Behold, this I have found says the preacher, which means that he's claiming authority, counting one by one to find out the account, which yet my soul seeks. I'm still looking, but I have not found. I find not one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Oh my goodness, Solomon, did you really write this down? Because what he is telling us here is he is saying, listen, I have applied every bit of my intellectual prowess and understanding to try to understand women. I have married a thousand of them, and he had a thousand. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So when he says, I counted one by one, and among a thousand I found out one, what he is saying is that in a thousand searches amongst women, I have not found one, not one that I understand. Now, what does that mean? Before you laugh, men in here, and say, yeah, I can relate, old Solly, old buddy. You know, no, 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 listen, listen, listen. Do you know why Solomon didn't understand the thing that he's seeking for understanding? Because he sought for it in a place of disobedience. See, Solomon didn't care what God had to say about relationships between men and women. He thought, well, I'm going to handle this in my own wisdom, in my own understanding, and I'm not going to worry about what God says. What God says about how this is supposed to work doesn't matter to me. I can do this my way. And thus he was never able to gain understanding in a thing because of his disobedience. Now what's amazing here is that his mother actually tried to help him. If you read Proverbs chapter 31, you guys know it. The Proverbs 31 woman, the virtuous woman. Do you know who wrote that chapter of the Bible? Solomon's mother. She wrote it to King Solomon about, hey, Solomon, this is the kind of woman that you're to go after, the godly woman, the virtuous woman. And he just said, Mom, please. Youth is wasted on the young. I don't need wisdom. I'm going for fun. And he chose a whole different type of woman that he was seeking something from. And he never found it. 
Why? Because he didn't obey God. Now, he, here's the amazing thing about Solomon. You know why he never found what he was looking for? Because he didn't know where to look. That was the problem. It wasn't that they don't exist. It's that they didn't know where to look. Do you know where you find a virtuous woman? I could tell you. This one's free. You know where? God makes them. That's the answer. God makes them. You know where you find a virtuous man? God makes them. That's the answer. By the way, did you know that the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, did you know that she doesn't actually exist? I mean, I would love to meet that woman. The one who's raising her family and taking care of a husband and running around the world importing and exporting things and has a name in the market and praising her husband and never does anything wrong. You find me that woman. I want to meet her when you do. That woman does not exist. But listen, neither does the Christ-like man. You say, well, Proverbs 31 is the model of a godly woman. Well, Jesus Christ is the model of a godly man, and you show me the man that measures up to that. See, what God provides for us in the Bible is he gives us the picture of what he creates and what he can do. And then he works in our spirit to conform us into the image of the thing. Now, you read the pages of Scripture, and what you find is that God knows how to make godly women, and God knows how to make godly men. You read the pages of Scripture, and you read about Sarah, you read about Rebecca. You read about Rahab, who had a shady past, but God changed her. You read about Ruth and Abigail, Bathsheba and Esther. You read about Elizabeth and all the Marys of the New Testament and beyond. You look into church history and you see the testament of what God has done through godly women. God makes godly women. And the reason why Solomon couldn't find one is because he looked for it in disobedience. And the principle is this, is that we obey God first, even when we don't understand a reason or a something. And the understanding will come later on. And even the wisest man in the world failed in this respect. Number 15, and the last one tonight, core values to live by, is don't invent yourself, just unfold yourself. Notice what Solomon says. He says, Lo, this only have I found, that God has made man upright but they have sought out many inventions. The word upright there that you see in the verse literally just means straightforward. In other words, God made man when he made you, when he created you in the womb and knit you together and gave you a personality and brought you into the world, he knew exactly what he was doing. He made you the way that he made you. But then what happens over the course of a lifetime is that we start putting on all of these inventions and we try to create a branding of ourselves and we try to create ourselves in an image that we want to present in a way that impresses us or that we think will impress others. And part of growing in the Lord and experiencing His freedom is shedding all of those layers that we build up throughout the years and growing into just what God made us to be. And when we do that, we find freedom because that's what he made us. I, I think about my kids and I watch them, you know, and they come into the world and they just are who they are. They're so pure. They're so innocent. Their personality is so raw and so real. And then we just watch as they have to put on these clothes and the inventions because they're in a public place and maybe they'll pick their nose. And someone will go, oh, look, gross. And they go, Whoosh. and they immediately learn, hey, this thing that was made for this reason, I know it. <laughs> it just makes sense. I'm never doing that again in public. <sighs> and they put their hand in their pocket. 
They don't even know it, but they just put something on. Like, don't ever do that again. They say something that isn't socially acceptable in a social situation, or they do something that isn't socially fitting. And someone laughs and makes fun, and, oh, and they learn, and they say, no, I'm never doing that again. And then they hear people praise something else, and they say, well, that's good, this is bad, I'm going to make my life that. That's what I'm going to conform my life into the image of. They're inventing. And thus, they're beginning to kind of lay the foundation of becoming something that God never intended them to be. But when we're secure in who he made us to be, and we allow his spirit to just unfold those things as we grow in him, we can shed the inventions of the image that we want to put forward. And we're free to be who he made us to be. God made man straightforward. Listen, this is what you are, and you're free to be that. Grow into it and thrive and prosper. Solomon gives us core values that we can live by. Would you stand with me? We're going to close the service. And I just want to pray over you tonight. I want to pray that if you find yourself in a place tonight where you say, you know what, I know God made me for a reason. I know he's given me a purpose. But I'm a little fuzzy about what that is. I want to pray that God tonight would open your eyes and that he'd reveal that to you, that you would really know and have a sense within you of why he made you and what it's for. I want to pray also that God fills you with the spirit, that you be motivated and energized and driven in the direction that he has called you. And I want to pray that if there be anywhere in your life that there needs to be a value change or a value addition in order to govern and drive forward what it is that God has ultimately made you to be, that he would give you the power to hear his voice tonight and that these things would become the values that drive us. So, Father, I just pray tonight for your people. I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Lord, for this chapter that Solomon has given to us. I thank you for the principles that are in it. And, Lord, it's so counterintuitive to us to what we hear and learn in the world. But we believe, Lord, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We believe that you're the one that made us. You're the one that sustains us. You're the one that drives us. And so I pray tonight, Lord, for your people. I pray in Jesus' name for a spirit to fall upon us right now. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a renewed sense of vision and purpose for our lives. You would help us to realize what we've been made for. Father, that we'd be filled with you overwhelmingly. And that, Lord, our character and who you made us to be would sustain the fruit that grows out of our lives. So help us, Lord, in these things. Take the things that we've heard, apply them to our hearts and lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.